You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to the Driving Law podcast. Today we are so excited to be joined again by Eric McGracken, who is the, in my opinion, top ICBC lawyer in BC and uh, the you know, my favorite podcast guest and our listeners' favorite podcast guests. So thank you, Eric, for taking time out of your busy day to join the podcast. Yeah, no, it's always my pleasure. Thanks, Kyla. Appreciate you having me on. So I wanted you on because there's like major news <laughs> this week um, about the civil resolution tribunal and the ICBC changes that you and I have talked about before. Um, so you know more of the background of this probably than I do. Um, there was a constitutional challenge by the Trial Lawyers Association of British Columbia to the provisions of uh, the um, uh, CRT uh, enabling statute that allowed them to deal with ICBC claims under a certain amount. Well, tell us what happened. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so the government's brought in a whole host of reforms over the years, and they're getting more and more draconian as time goes on, culminating in full-blown no-fault, where the government, starting later this year, is taking away everybody's rights to negligent and careless drivers, instead leaving you at the mercy of ICBC. And what they've done is they took incremental steps towards that process. And one of one of the steps was setting up, they didn't create the civil resolution, you know, that was created uh, past governments, but they expanded the jurisdiction of the civil resolution tribunal. Mm -hmm. And they said, they basically built a better mousetrap. They said, this is gonna be a faster, quicker, more efficient path to justice. And they went so far as to say, not only do we have a better mousetrap, you have to use it. You can't take your case to court anymore. You can't go to BC Supreme Court. Don't use this product because it's better. You have to use this product and we're telling you it's better. Now, uh, not a lot of people thought it was better. I know I caught a bit of flack in the media after I pointed out that nobody at the time, <laughs> yeah, at least at the time I said it, there's about 97% of uh, cases involving ICBC at the CRT were being decided in ICBC's favor. And a lot of British Columbians weren't quick to um, go to the tribunal. They were actually holding off to see what this constitutional challenge did. And the timing is great because as of April, the very first wave of limitation periods were gonna kick in where people had to file. But uh, Chief Justice Hinkson released this judgment in a timely fashion and basically said, the legislation that forces claims out of BC Supreme Court that deal with fault for crashes, that deal with quantum of damages under $50,000, and deal with deciding whether an injury is a minor injury is unconstitutional. The province simply didn't have the power to strip all those cases from the federally appointed judges. They, they outright overstepped their constitutional bounds in their effort to take people's rights away to uh, make the system more beneficial for ICBC. So, so sort of in a nutshell, 
that's what happened. And the fight's not over. There's there's still a charter challenge um, involving this legislation. And I'm happy to get into that if you want. But oh, yeah. I, I have to do this, Kyla. I yes. use that terrible term, minor injuries. And nobody listening is going to see these nice quotations I'm putting up. Yeah, I, I use that word sarcastically, but minor does not mean minor. Minor means brain injury. Minor means permanently, partially disabling injuries. Minor means psychiatric conditions. Minor means almost everything that happens after a car crash, the government labeled minor. And they're almost trolling the public using the word minor because it's in the legislation. So we always have to say minor injury making it seem like we're talking about trivial things. We're talking about life-changing injuries in some circumstances. And so uh, what, what the court said is, no, you can't take that away from the courts. We still have the right to decide these cases, and you simply cannot force people into a provincial tribunal with provincially appointed adjudicators instead of federally appointed independent justices of the Supreme Court. So what parts are remaining like there it wasn't everything that was struck down as unconstitutional there's still some that's left yeah so so the one main thing that's left is when it comes to part seven benefits so so when you're injured in a crash everybody has their own insurance that covers certain uh things like medications uh, various designated treatment expenses if you ever get in a fight with icbc about what they should be paying under your own policy of insurance, as opposed to suing the at-fault motorist, the tribunal still does retain jurisdiction for those cases after a certain date. I think it was April of last or, or of 2019. So, so that wasn't really challenged. I don't know if in the pleadings if it was challenged, uh, but during submissions, trial lawyers acknowledged that in and of itself it's not unconstitutional. But these types of cases that are routinely and historically have been heard by our superior courts, that's where the government really abused their power and went too far. So why do you, what was the reasoning? Why is it that a court, um, a court should retain jurisdiction over this as opposed to a tribunal? What makes injury claims so special? (laughs) I say as the drunk driver lawyer dealing with a tribunal. (laughs) Yeah, no, fair enough. And, And I'm just a modest personal injury lawyer, not a fancy constitutional scholar. So I'm going to give your listeners a very surface level explanation of this. But Section 96 of our Constitution, Canada's Constitution, which provides powers, one of the things that it does is it says that the federal government will appoint judges to our superior courts. And the way that section has been interpreted, it says provinces cannot then strip away cases from the superior court's core jurisdiction. It's simply a separation of powers. Feds give us our federal judges. Those federally appointed judges have a core set of cases they're allowed to hear, and the province simply has no business stripping those kinds of cases out of the superior court judges and then appointing their own people. It's violating the powers they're giving, given on confederacy. And so Section 96 was found to be violated by Chief Justice Kingston by by the provincial government uh, and basically said that they've improperly conferred to themselves judicial decision-making power that used to lie with the superior courts. And it's, you know, it's a know, I think, I think <laughs> a small forest was killed in this decision, but 
415 paragraphs, and I just got through it today. I put it up on my blog when it was breaking news just to get the word out there. I had a chance today to do the whole judgment. It, it seems very well-reasoned, and um, you know, the, the BC government, again, tried to really disparage the personal injury profession, made all sorts of improper comments and untrue comments that were found about personal injury lawyers, lawyers' interests in advocating their clients' rights. Uh, no, sorry, it's not even the question, Kyla, but I'm going to rant. I want to hear this. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to rant about this. So, so the one thing that's really irritated me is the, the government's gone out of their way putting up uh, a boogeyman, uh, putting up a straw man. It's the personal injury lawyers. Look, these lawyers are saying this is bad. They're just a bunch of greedy guys. They're being hit in their own pocketbook. Now, the government knew lawyers were going to oppose these changes. Why? Because lawyers represent clients. Lawyers' rights weren't taken away under this legislation. Clients' rights, your rights, my rights as British Columbians were taken away. Our right to go to court was taken away. Our right to have proper assessment of damages when we're injured through the wrongdoing of others was taken away. And so lawyers speaking on behalf of public, of people we represent, are saying, hey, government, you guys went too far. You're doing things you're not allowed to do here. And the government, knowing that lawyers were going to be the voice of opposition, decided to say, oh, don't listen. It's just the greedy lawyers. We're here helping you out. They're not helping you out. They're helping an insurance monopoly out by rigging the system in the favor of that insurance monopoly. And the problem is, People don't understand that it impacts them until it's too late. When you have a car crash five months from now, when some texting driver, speeding driver, or inattentive driver smashes into you, hurts you and your family, it's your rights that were taken away, not the greedy lawyer's rights. This narrative the government's been selling now for years, trying to undermine public confidence in the judicial system, in the legal system is really infuriating. It, it really shortchanges the public and it creates a dangerous long-term narrative to bolster their short-term interests in, in taking people's rights away. And just, just to finish my rant, I'll ask you a question, Kyla. Yep. When an attorney general passes unconstitutional laws, would you say that's perhaps one of their biggest professional failures of their duties of office? I mean, yeah, you're if you're if they're a lawyer, yeah, you're supposed to make sure that you you write law that is constitutionally valid and that you, you know, carefully consider all of the constitutional issues so that you can reasonably answer for them in the court, not so that you can go to court and go, yeah, but personal injury lawyers are hiring too many experts. Yeah, but personal injury lawyers are dragging these cases out and it's taking up judges' time and yeah, but personal injury lawyers. Yeah, that, that mantra is exactly it. Lawyers, 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 bad lawyers, bad lawyers, instead of the merits. And so on this point, we now have an attorney general that's put together, be it rules or legislation, that twice has been found to be unconstitutional, stripping powers from the courts that they have no right to strip, placing limits on due process when it comes to how cases are adjudicated in courts that they had no right to strip. We've got two-time unconstitutional attorney general. We have the same legislation still before the courts that arguably is a charter violation for all British Columbians under Section 15 of the Canadian Charter. And then we have an end run around 
they they said you could only bring so many expert witnesses to court, even if your case needed more. Now they're saying, okay, fine, fine, that was unconstitutional. Now you just can't get paid for the experts you bring to court. When I say can't get paid, I don't mean lawyers. I mean you, the injured person who's getting shortchanged by ICBC, you have to go to court and you have to prove your case. But guess what? If you had to prove your case and you needed several experts because you had complex, multifaceted injuries, too bad. You can't recover that money, even if ICBC was dead wrong in denying your case and taking the position they took. Too bad there's an arbitrary limit that has no bearing on the reality of how much you need to spend to prove your case. So now we have this brand new disbursement limit. And so when, when all the dust settles, we might just have four unconstitutional acts, all trying to fatten ICBC's bottom line. That's, you know, that's what's going on. Anyways, here's my rant. Let me ask you about this expert thing. Does ICBC have a similar limit on the number of experts that can be paid for uh, through ICBC's coffers, or can they still hire 10 experts on a complex case? Yeah, I don't, I don't read it that way. I think they're free to bring as many experts as they want, just like the plaintiff is, but the plaintiff is the one who now can't recover those costs. Right. The, who pay for ICBC's experts are the plaintiffs in all of these cases who've been rate payers for years and years and years. Well, that's right. That's exactly where their money comes from. And so they could deny a case that they have no business denying. They could pay experts who have been judicially rejected on a serial basis to come and deny that injuries occur, even though every treating physician says it's there. And then at the last moment, they could pay fair money or take it the distance and fight it and be told to pay fair money. But then when the plaintiff says, well, since you denied everything, and now I've had to build a case to the doorsteps of trial, uh, please let me recover everything I was forced to spend to have access to justice. And this new regulation says, no, you can't get it. It's too bad. It's going to be 6% of your damages. That's it. Even if you properly incurred disbursements well above that, if you had this is the choice people have to make, Kyla. They could either go to court and not prove their case, or they could prove their case but not recover the cost of having to prove that case. And this only applies to ICBC cases, vehicle injury proceedings. Or, you know, a small handful of private insurers will get the benefit of it, but ICBC benefits from this 99 out of 100 car crash cases. This is just... Why doesn't this apply to every single case that's before the courts? Why does only ICBC benefit? It's completely disingenuous. But of course, it's it's the greedy lawyers, right? That's the... You make so much money when, when you hire an expert for your clients. You get exactly zero cents from that expert fee. Yeah, zero dollars and zero cents. That's right. The, the cl clients hire their own experts. Sometimes lawyers will do it as a courtesy for the client, so the clients aren't out of money as the claim is ongoing. And the best case scenario is that cost is recovered on a break-even basis. That's it. So lawyers don't make one penny by bringing experts or And my biggest, I'm probably going to be a broken record from things I've said on past podcasts, but this is maybe my biggest irritant of all of it. Actually, undermining integrity in the justice system is the biggest irritant, but a close second um, is, is I lost my train of thought. I just got so irritated <laughs> thinking about that, that undermining process. Let I'm me, sorry, Kyla. 
Let me ask, going back to that example where ICBC hires a ton of experts to try and, you know, force you to lose your case, even though your doctors say that you have these injuries, could the courts rebel against this legislation by imposing punitive or special costs orders that are designed to cover the costs of those additional experts that were required? I, yeah, I have to just, as I'm chatting with you, I'm just glancing at the legislation. I think I think something that's expressly excluded excluded our costs orders, special costs orders. So if you do have a deviant expert and somebody's being punished, then then that's not going to fly. Um, but but again, it, it just comes down to an access to justice argument of okay, either either don't prove your case, too bad, so sad, you're not going to have proper damages because you didn't prove your case. And every ICBC defense lawyer out there is going to argue a plaintiff didn't prove their case if they didn't bring evidence. They're not going to say, well, the rules are written this way, so let's cut some slack on the, on the standard of proof. Of course not. You have to prove your case. Files are tough. You know this better than anybody. They're going to fight tooth and nail to make sure litigants meet their standard of proof, their burden of proof. And so, so it's just such, such a tough choice. Either don't prove your case or prove it, but get shortchanged in what you can uh, get recovered. So I'm sure a challenge is imminent on this new um, regulation that just got passed. And, and all of us have to sit back and wait and see. But in the meantime, people are going to be gun shy about properly advancing their cases through the justice system. It's either do it with this rigged system or wait for this new regulation to have its day in court. So yeah, this is this is just the latest in a long um, process of assaults on people's rights when it comes to access to justice. So you, you've touched on a couple times this Section 15 Charter Challenge. Can you explain that to the listeners who don't know what that means? So I, I yeah thanks I'm I'm going to go back to the minor injury law so everything's basically minor except for broken bones and a small handful of other injuries according to the BC government and um, when you go when you go to court you have to prove that you have a non-minor injury to have proper non-pecuniary damages otherwise you get this very uh, inadequate cap of only fifty dollars it grows with inflation around fifty hundred dollars right now. The problem is the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, Section 15, says governments cannot pass laws that discriminate based on physical and mental conditions. I think that's the language of the charter. I don't have it in front of me, but, but you can't discriminate based on mental and psychiatric conditions. The problem is minor injury law does exactly that. I, I actually can't see it otherwise. It says if you have a concussion or a psychological injury, you have one period of time you have to wait for it not to be minor. But if you have any other physical injury, you have a much longer period of time. So the law on its face says some injuries are going to be not minor with a shorter period of disability, and others need a far longer period of disability. The only test for which category it fits in is physical or a mental disability. That's all that we're talking about. So I don't see how it doesn't violate the charter. Now, again, my opinion doesn't matter. A judge's opinion is going to matter. But the trial lawyers are arguing that the minor injury cap is discriminatory, and it does violate Section 4. And that's going to be the next decision for Chief Justice Hinkson to decide. There very well might be 
the charter breach. And I don't think, even though the minor injury law is almost two years old, I don't think there's been any judicial decisions addressing minor injuries. And I don't think there will be any time soon because we all need to know this is an unconstitutional law. So our government criticizing the slow justice system has decided to throw a wrench in it and slow everything down for a few years um, while COVID did its own job to slow things down. So there's a lot of delay. And where I'm sitting, I don't see lawyers playing a lot of the blame. I see constitutional laws and potentially charter violating laws in a very prominent role in low access to justice. Um, the other question I had for you was this issue of special costs. Um, at the very end of Chief Justice Hinkson's judgment, he said he was going to leave for another day the issue of costs. Is the Do you understand the application for special costs to be because of the derogatory statements that were made about trial lawyers generally and about plaintiff personal injury lawyers, or why would special costs be ordered? I, I personally actually have no firsthand insight into that, so I don't know why they were seeking special <laughs> costs. And, and Kyla, I have to confess, if it's in the judgment, I glossed over that part, so <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the very last slide, I always skip to the very end of a judgment, get the bottom line first. Yeah, you read backwards, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, but on the costs, I just know nothing has been decided yet, but I don't know what was argued or, or what's at stake there. But, um, but yeah, if the courts do call out these these um, government efforts on disparaging judiciary and other important democratic institutions, you know, that's a very welcome move because the government has a very loud megaphone. What they say gets disseminated and what they say gets believed by a lot of people. And thinking lawyers is a fun pastime of a lot of folks. So when the government's amplifying that message, it becomes a bit of a ugly situation. So if there's judicial pushback on any improper government messaging, that's actually very welcome for where I'm sitting. The other question that I really wanted to know from you is escaping my mind now. You're so interesting. <laughs> you make me forget my questions, but I- I, I just ramble on and on as the problem. <laughs> Good. Um, it had, oh, what about all the people who were, um, who had their cases decided under this legislation already? Is there any hope for them or are they just, they got a bad kick at the can and they're stuck with it? Yeah, they're probably stuck with it. Uh, you, you're, you're talking to the wrong guy. I don't know, Kyla. I, I, I think, you know, if you, if you proceed under a system and you don't challenge its validity, I think you're stuck with the decision. Uh, everybody who has not gone to judgment certainly gets the benefit of this ruling of unconstitutionality. But I suspect the folks that have a judgment and are beyond any appellate periods are probably stuck with what they have. But again, I'm, I'm getting out of my wheelhouse a little bit. So folks don't take that as legal advice. It's just me rambling on the Internet again speculating about how it could work. I, I, you know, I, I also wonder if there are people out there, I doubt there are, because ICBC, I think, once a judgment is rendered, satisfies it. But if there are people out there who haven't received their money from ICBC, is ICBC now not obligated to pay it? Or if they have received their money from ICBC, um, you know, can they return it and and say, yeah, I'm sorry, I can't accept this under an unconstitutional law, realizing that you're not 
a constitutional scholar, so maybe. Yeah, no, I hate to have serial, I don't know answers to your, your great questions for your listeners. But generally, when you settle a case, you're out of luck, right? So, so people receive money from ICBC in the tort context, one of two ways. There's either a settlement reached or there's a judgment pronounced. And so if there's a settlement reached, people are signing a contract, a full and final release where they give up their right to sue in exchange for the money. And it's one of those contractual principles with absent things like fraud or, or duress or, or some other sinister circumstances, you're stuck with the deal you get, even if in hindsight, it looks like it's a rotten deal. So most people I know, unless they have what we truly would call minor injuries in the real sense of the word, haven't been settling their so-called minor injury cases because they understand the importance of waiting to see if their charter rights are being violated. People that have gone ahead and have settled their ICBC cases, they're stuck with it. I don't think this ruling is going to give anybody a chance to undo a settlement. And people that have gone to judgment, I sort of defer to my last answer, they're probably stuck with that as well, subject to their appellate rights. Okay. I know you have another podcast to get to, but I wanted to give you a couple minutes to plug your new video series before I let you go. Well, I'm, I'm in shadow of a great here, Kyle. I, I, before I came on, I looked up your latest song. I think you're up to about 62,000 views. Oh my God, really? Yeah, yeah. You've <laughs> authored two glossy, beautiful looking textbooks, and I actually can't wait to get my hands on the cross-examination ones. So this, this really should be a, hey, plug, plug your stuff, because <laughs> your, your listeners probably don't care about my face-punching endeavors and and uh, all that good stuff. But yeah, I launched I launched a, a YouTube channel. Uh, what did I call it? I called it Combat Sports Lawyer Explains. So for probably the last decade, I've been, uh, it's, a, it's a small part of my practice, but I've dedicated a small part of my practice to regulatory issues in combat sports. I've got about a decade worth of content there. I at least am amused by some of the stories I've run into over the years. So I'm putting some of the more interesting ones into video content for folks that like to access information that way. And I, I don't have any delusions. No one's going to be viewing this stuff 62,000 times, but there's there's a small audience for it and I hope they find value in it. So yeah, thanks for letting me give that plug. Perfect. All right, everybody go watch Eric's videos and just play them on a loop all night so he gets 62,000 views. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day. I know you're super busy today and I really, really appreciate it because uh, there isn't anyone else I would want more to talk about this judgment on the podcast. So thank you. Yeah, my absolute pleasure. Thanks, Kyla. Well, Paul, you missed an exciting discussion with Eric McGracken. Well, I can listen to it when I listen to the podcast on Friday afternoon. Yeah. As I often do, driving home. I, I had... When I'm not on it. I had told you about the decision that... Uh, that Eric and I talked about, and I believe your response was something to the effect of, well, I don't want to talk about, I don't want to read that fucking thing. <laughs> no, that wasn't my response. 400 paragraphs? No, that was not my response. Was it 400 paragraphs? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's long. Yeah. No. You want to read that fucking thing? <laughs> no, I don't. I did not say that. I did not say that. I said, that's, you know, glad that you've got Eric on because he's actually, you know, someone who will read it and know it and explain it. So. Okay. Well, you have actually come up with a topic this week yes i did and and i i uh it's something i've been following a little bit in the pandemic so we're getting close to the end of the pandemic i don't think people realize how fast it's going to uh 
going to unwind when things unwind here. And it's going to uh, happen quickly as a result of the fact that the Americans are going to have way more vaccines than they need. We're probably going to have more vaccines than we need. We're getting the uh, AstraZeneca one, I think, now is coming. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Um, the British one. And that was not factored into our our vaccine rollout here. So and the pandemic, Johnson and Johnson's going to come. Johnson and Johnson's going to come. Like by May, the the Americans are going to basically have everybody who wants a vaccine vaccinated, uh, and it's going to be happening here fast too. But an interesting thing about the pandemic was the health effects, obviously, that it's had on people. A lot of people talked about their COVID nineteen, the weight that they gained. Um, we noticed that um, they're still drinking and driving despite the fact that bars were closed, and people are driving pretty badly. And I'm concerned about the manner in which people are going to drive this summer. I've already noticed a lot more traffic. But one of the health concerns that hasn't been talked about is the increase in people who are suffering from gastroesophageal reflux disorder or GERD, heartburn. Stress-related. Well, stress-related or alcohol-related or weight gain-related, those are all things whoa, that trigger it. Whoa, what are you saying to me? Who are you calling out here, Paul? I'm not calling you up for anything. <laughs> My point is, I mean, I, I have perpetual GERD because I have a problem with my sphincter. Mm-hmm. Uh, my sphincter, my the one that is at the top of my stomach at the bottom of my esophagus. Sure. And uh, that's the <laughs> one of the common problems. My sphincter is not tight enough. Anyway, the um, so I have this problem and I have medication for it. But the first medication that most people go to are antacids. Now, Tums? Yep. And it turns out antacids are in short supply. And there's been it's been very difficult for suppliers to get the material required for it. Uh, and they were t- looking at, at rationing it. And I didn't realize this. Before Christmas, the New York Times did a big expose on it. Um, antacids in short supply amid the pandemic. This, isn't this partly due to the fact that, like, didn't they recall Zantac because it was carcinogenic? Yeah, there was some, I don't know, uh, and I, I don't want to uh, uh, defame a, some medication that's out there, but I know that there was some uh, that were pulled out, the the ranitidine or whatever it is, but there's like seven others, right? There's a bunch of prescription ones, mm-hmm. um, but the, uh, and that may be, you know, part of the issue is that they pulled that out. I've still probably got a bunch of it at home. Um, but in any event, the, uh, the point here is how is this connected to driving lock? Well, I was going to ask you, Paul, I mean, yeah. I know what the answer is, but for sure, I was going to go, but Paul, what does this have to do with driving law? Well, I, I hate to like digress too much, but, um, I'll go very quickly into the concern here. The concern is that in British Columbia and Alberta, we used roadside breath tests and roadside breath tests, uh, do not. Uh, identify the source of the alcohol and if the source of the alcohol is regurgitated alcohol from your stomach you can get a false reading you, and it'll only be one way it only gets high on a roadside breath tester now this what this is telling me is that there's more people than ever are experiencing GERD gastroesophageal reflux disorder there's more people than ever who are experiencing heartburn issues seeking relief for it which means there's more people than ever who are going to be blowing false fails on an ASD. Well, I actually, I buy that. Not because the numbers of IRP cases are up, but because I have seen a surprising increase in the last 30 days in the results of approved instrument testing. 
So the Intox ECIR2, the instrument that they use at the police station for people who are arrested and investigated criminally for impaired driving, I have seen more mouth alcohol readings on that lately, and I don't know why, but now I do. Well, I mean, there could be lots of other reasons. This is one theoretical reason. They could have changed the sensitivity in the instruments last time they did maintenance on them. They did not send them in for annual maintenance during the pandemic. You never know if they're plugged in and they get uh, they get um, uh, updates to their software. Uh, but yeah, it could be that too. We did a few years ago um, a survey. We hired a survey company, Research Co., uh, to do a survey of British Columbians to find out the percentage of British Columbians who were experiencing gastroesophageal reflux disorder. And we used that as uh, evidence in submissions because you know, we hired somebody who did an independent uh, survey and came up with uh, some very interesting data. And it was basically like 12 to 14% or something like that of British Columbians experiencing this. Now it's probably higher now. Maybe it's up to 20%. And actually, 20% would probably fit with what we hear. Um, might be higher than that. So another side effect of the pandemic, some people who have had COVID are going to have trouble blowing in the future. We know that. Some people now, more people now are experiencing GERD and will be blowing false fails into the future. Um, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing. One of the other things, of course, is that the police are reluctant to get close to individuals to determine whether or not they have an odor of liquor on their breath. Yet at the same time, they're relying on the reasonable suspicion standard. And a lot of times they don't have a reasonable suspicion. Well, that's a topic for another day because yes. that's going to take more time than we have. And we still have to get to your favorite part of the week. Well, I wanted to talk before we get to that, to the one other issue that relates to this. Okay. Really quickly. And that is that people who are using antacids often end up with vitamin deficiencies. B12 vitamin deficiency is the fairly common one, apparently. And uh, that leads to people being depressed, which leads to them drinking more. B12 is connected to depression. So is drinking up? Yes. Is drinking up causing people to use antacids? Yes. Is antacid use making people depressed and drink more? Probably. So you're saying it's like a snake eating its own tail. Something like that, or it's a uh, it's a positive feedback loop. It's like putting an amp and a microphone to each other and waiting for it to get really loud. I feel like that would just make a really high pitched, awful sound. Yes, same thing. That's a feedback loop. Yeah, do not like. It's just a it's a light speed and speed of sound feedback loop. All right. So now, do you want? Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. If it's the ridiculous driver of the week. No, it's the ridiculous driver of the week. The ridiculous driver of the week. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, can't believe you stole my, like, my, my introduction of it. Anyway, this guy's great. Ever seen ridiculous stuff in traffic court, Paul? All the time. Yep. One time I was in traffic court and I saw a guy uh, send his family members in to say that he was in the hospital and couldn't be there. And nobody believed it because it turns out he was in the parkade of the building, but he had a hospital bracelet, but he wasn't wearing it, but he was holding it. So you knew he'd been in the hospital. <laughs> and then... 
he um, pretended to puke the entire trial, and they made him do his trial, and he just fake vomited the whole time. Good. Anyway, yeah. I'm sure he was convicted. He probably was. You didn't stick around for the end. No, I couldn't stomach it. But this ridiculous driver of the week takes the cake on the traffic court appearances. So this guy is in the middle of performing surgery when he logs into Zoom court. He's like in an operating room wearing the mask and the surgical cap and everything. It's a doctor. It's a doctor. Yeah, he's a surgeon. And the judge is like, you look like you're in the middle of surgery, sir. He says, well, yes, I am. But there's another doctor here. So if something goes wrong, it'll be okay. The judge is just like flabbergasted. This is all on Zoom. You can find it online. You just Google surgeon traffic court and it will come up. The video is like the tone from the judge is when the judge is so... You ever get those here when judges talk and they're just so appalled at how stupid somebody is being? But of course they can't be unjudicial about it. They're struggling to hold it in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That was that tone. Now, I'm not comfortable proceeding like this Mr. whatever his name was. Oh, I'm f- I'm fine, Your Honor. No, no. We're we're not I'm concerned about your patient's welfare. How could you think in the middle of surgery that you can represent yourself in a traffic ticket trial? Um, well, it's an interesting thing. Every doctor is different, just like every lawyer is different, and it uh, seems that some doctors persuade themselves that <laughs> they should have some sort of special treatment because they're Why would doctors. the other doctor not say, dude? Why would the nurses, the anesthesiologists, not say, buddy, come on? Maybe he's the most important guy in the hospital, and everybody's going to cover for him for his few minutes while he's in traffic court on he's Zoom. He's a plastic <laughs> surgeon. Oh, my goodness. He's not the most yeah, you important guy to, in the hospital. You wouldn't want him to botch that. Maybe, maybe that what that's telling you is that really plastic surgery is not that difficult and and uh, people are being gouged. Maybe. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, that is a ridiculous, yeah. a ridiculous traffic court appearing surgeon driver. This is my recommendation to all doctors out there who think that they can attend their hearings remotely while performing surgery. Don't do it. Hire me instead. I'm surprisingly affordable and I'll cost you less than the lawyer will charge you for your complaint with the medical college. That's true. Or uh, or the contempt finding because yeah. you know, there's uh, there's all sorts of ways this could have gone. Yep. So that's, that's our Ridiculous Driver of the Week and that's our podcast. Well, there you go. So tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law. And if you need to find us in the meantime, give us a call 604-685-8889. Or find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com. And if you're taking antacids, take a B12 supplement so you're not so depressed. There's Paul luck out there. giving medical advice. 